This is Jesus speaking to the disciples on the last night of his earthly life before the cross. And these words are beautiful, and I certainly will need the Lord's help to open them today because there is such depth and profundity in them as Jesus really opens his heart to his disciples. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me. Notice these words. As the Father has loved Jesus, so Jesus loves us. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, there's no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, as the psalmist says, your face, O Lord, do we seek. And we would ask that this morning, Lord, that each of our hearts would be yearning to seek for the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father but through him. It is you we seek. May the light of your face so shine upon our hearts, as it says in Corinthians, to bring light and glory to bring transformation as we behold you, we would be transformed even as you do your work here this morning, O oh Lord. We do not want to gather as a religious club. We want to meet with the living God and to be transformed thereby. So give the preacher the words to say and anything that would be unhelpful, Lord, stop it now before the sermon and give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. And if any be here this morning, Lord, who do not know you, as we heard last week, may you lift the veil that separates the knowledge of God. May their hearts be transformed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It is fair to say that all of us inside have a yearning to make a difference. 
All of us probably have a yearning to do things differently than they've been done before. All of us have a yearning to leave behind a legacy that isn't a bad one, but is a good one. It reminds me of the story of a lawyer. There was a lawyer and his name was rather odd. He was called Mr. Odd. And you can imagine as a lawyer what that was like going through law school being called Mr. Odd. He's an odd body. He's an odd soul. He's an odd one. So when it came to Mr. Odd's time to depart this mortal realm, he decided that he wasn't going to put in his gravestone the words odd, but instead he would put in his gravestone, here lies a good and honest lawyer. So when he died and he was put in his gravestone, it was erected, here lies a good and honest lawyer. And for many years, and please do forgive me, Tosin, for many years people have walked past the grave and say, here lies a good and honest lawyer? That's odd. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome back, by the way, guys. It's lovely to see you in that. No, welcome back. <laughs> but we want to leave something behind us. Oh, in trouble now, isn't it? We want to leave something behind us that is good. And when we start out in life, we, we ask these questions, why am I here? What is the point of life? What is it all about? And you'll have heard me answer that question before by coming back again to this person who sits at the center of this narrative today, this compelling, attracting figure who walks across the pages of history, who has transformed millions upon billions of life, who has shaped the history of this globe. It is none other than Jesus Christ himself, the Son of the living God come down amongst us. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is unique. Jesus is the one I want to put across to you this morning. So Lord, help me to do it. Let us look at Jesus and see if we can answer these questions. What is life about? What are we here for? And what difference can we make? Firstly, let us look at Jesus and hear what he says. He roots and grounds the start of this narrative by very clearly identifying himself as the one that God has sent. Look at verse one there. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Have you ever read a good book? Isn't it great? C.S. Lewis once said, there's, there's not a book long enough or a cup of tea hot enough to keep you going, is there? Have you ever read a really good book or watched a really good movie that's drawn you in? You can say yes, it's okay. It's not. And it's great, isn't it? And the good thing about a good movie or a good book is when you watch it again or read it again, you pick up things you missed the first time, don't you? There's a plot, there's thinking behind it. It's, it's more than just sort of this and that. John's gospel is like that. It is an amazing gospel. I love every word of God is amazing, but there's something about John that I just love. And John is a very wise writer. Under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit, he lifts up themes from the Old Testament to describe who Jesus is. And if you read your Old Testament history in Isaiah, in the Psalms, especially Psalm 80, God said to the people of Israel, I am a farmer and you guys are my vine." And there's these beautiful descriptions about how God, I mean, how many of you like gardening? We've got some gardeners. I would love to like gardening, but I grew up on a farm, so I just see a bit of land as something to be wrestled with. So Malin just lets me cut the grass and that's it. She's a great gardener, but gardening takes a bit of work. And this image of gardening where the Lord cleared the soil, took away the stones, put good land in, and planted this vine, which are very difficult things to grow and nurture. And he watched it grow. And this was to symbolize the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were to grow. And what, why, why do we grow vines? To produce fruit. But this vine didn't produce fruit. It turned in on itself. It wasn't pruned. It, it went wild. And it failed for the purpose in which God had given it. 
God had given Israel the purpose to show his glory and his love to the nations, a purpose which he made you and I for. What are we made for? Why are we here? We cannot find that answer by looking in on ourselves, but looking to the one who made us and in whose image we are made. God, out of the delight and overflow of his heart in the Trinity, created this world not because he needed us, not because he wanted something from us, but because he wanted us as his image bearers, the ones who reflect him, to delight and rejoice in his love, his goodness, his kindness, and sing his praises for all eternity. And so he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And you notice in uh, Romans 3, verse 23, when it says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The image is there that we were supposed to reflect and rejoice in that glory. We looked at that last week in 2 Corinthians, that we behold Jesus and are transformed by his goodness and his love. We were made to show that to the world. We were made to be his representatives. We were made, that is our vocation in life, to know God and make him known. And we didn't do it. We rebelled and turned in on ourselves. And that's where sin entered in. So God sends a redeemer. He sends prophets. He raises up the people of Israel and rescues them. says, Israel, you're my rescue people. I've saved you from slavery. You're my vine planted. Show me to the nations. And what do they do? Well, they do the exact opposite, don't they? And so they didn't. And in these last days, for people to know God, for people to know the meaning of it all, for people to see what he is like, he did something astounding and amazing, which we just celebrated at Christmas. He sent his only son into the world to be a wee baby, to grow up truly human, but also truly God. And he reflected the glory and the beauty of God. Jesus is the true vine. Do you want to know what God looks like? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know how God loves? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know how God deals with sin? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know how God is holy and pure? Look to Jesus. Jesus is the shining true vine who produced fruit to the glory of his father. And he came in love and beauty and majesty. Don't you love that scene we get a glimpse of it at the transfiguration where Jesus goes up the mountain with the three disciples? And there's that glimpse when his, his glory is revealed to them and it's powerful and it's astounding up the mountain. Elijah appears. Um, Moses, how can we forget Moses? Moses appears and this glory shines out. Jesus is not just some religious figure in the pantheon of religious figures. He's just not some hobby or lifestyle we tack on to things to make us feel better. He is the son of the living God come to show us God and to call us back for the purpose for which we were made to know God, enjoy him and rejoice and make him known forevermore. Jesus is the true vine. And as he comes here, he says to the disciples, I am the true vine, a vine grows. But guess what, guys? I've got some good news. Your branches, you flow out of me. Your life, your support, your substance come from me. Jesus is the source of our life, spiritually and actually physically as well. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Every branch of me that does not produce fruit, he removes. He prunes every branch that produces fruit, so it produces more fruit. Verse 3, you're already clean, meaning you're part of this. If you've trusted in me, Jesus said this in John 13, by my word you'll be made clean, meaning you're part of the body of Christ. You're grafted in, you've repented in faith and trust. You're part of me because of the word I've spoken to you. What word is that? The word to live. The word to have life. The word that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that a great invitation from God? 
I mean, to think of all the things God could have said to us. He sends his only son that whosoever believes him, even though they rebel, even though they have spat in his face like the thief on the cross, whosoever believes in me shall be saved. And if you do that, and friend, this morning, if you have believed in Christ, if you have trusted in him and his spirit is within you, you are linked to the true vine. You are linked to Jesus Christ. It's one of the most profound and yet underpreached mysteries of the Christian faith that we have union, that we are joined, that we are part of the body of Jesus Christ in a way that is amazingly close, amazingly intimate. Isn't that great? Like if you one, do you know what, if you're fed up with a sermon, have a have an image in your head of a vine and its branches. Is there any separation between them? They're pretty close, aren't they? Can you get much closer than a vine and its branches? Christian friend, if you're in Christ, that's how close you are to your Lord. And Paul talks about this. If you want to read more about this, read Ephesians. Where he talks about how we are united with Christ. We are joined to him. His life is in us and our life is hid with Christ on high. And when God, when Christ appears, we shall see what we are. John, 1 John, the epistle that John writes later on, is basically a, a, an excursus in this whole theme. John kept these words through his whole life. Whoever says he abides in him, 1 John 1 verse 6, in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. There's union and there's closeness and there's sustaining and there's power. We're going to sing later on. Are we singing that today? When I fear my faith? Excellent. We're going to sing later on. When I fear my faith will fail. Have you ever felt that way? Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail. Have you ever felt the lies of the devil? You're not good enough. You're not doing enough. You're, how could God love you? When the tempter would prevail. Christ will hold me fast. He flowers each promise of his word. Christ will hold me fast. Brothers and sisters, this morning, nothing can separate you of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the true vine, and you are the branches. He is the source of our life. He is the source of the life of the church. He is what keeps us going. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And he calls us to abide in him. Verses 1 to 4 describe the source. Verses 5 to 8 there, look at your Bible, describe how we're called to abide in him. Remain in me, abide in me, and I in you, just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, it remains in the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. Even our dragon fruit this morning has to stay attached to the tree to produce itself. Remain in me, and I in you. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. And by the way, it's an interesting thought. Isn't branches of a vine basically just small vines? It's not very profound, guys. I'm not giving you anything too profound. They are small branches. Isn't it amazing in Acts when they tried to criticize the Christians and when they tried to throw an insult? I mean, I wish I could get insulted like this. They said, you're just like little Jesuses. It's not a beautiful insult when you think about it. We don't like them, guys. They're just like Jesus. Amen. We abide in him, the source of our life, our substance, our strength, our all. And as we abide in him, what does it mean to abide? To abide in something, and I, I did look up the dictionary last night, but I can't remember where I put up my notes. There we go. To abide in him. The word abide actually in modern English nowadays has different connotations, doesn't it? I abide with the weather. It kind of means you put up with it, doesn't it? 
or but we, I was at a quiz on Friday night, and there was, there was a famous line about her indoors. I can't remember where it comes from. You know, when you see these couples who say, I abide with her indoors, it doesn't exactly conjure up nice images, does it? But if you look at the word abiding, it means lasting, lifelong, continuing, remaining, sustaining, unending. In fact, the Oxford Theodore says, eternal links, steadfast. When we get saved, we wholly and completely trust in Jesus Christ. I have no other confidence. I have no other plea than that Jesus died and shed his blood for me. But it doesn't stop there. We continue to remain and lean on him the whole way through our Christian life. And just as an image needs a source to be sustained, we who bear God's image need to be sustained eternally and constantly by him. The very air that we breathe is a gift of God's grace and so is salvation. Abide in him. Remain in him. Be linked to him. Rejoice in his presence. He is the source of our life. Now, what does this abiding look like? What does this remaining look like? Because to stay steadfast, to stay part of him, firstly, yes, it is to trust him. It is to follow him. But let's look at verse 5 to get a bit further. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you could do with nothing without me. So this idea of remaining in Christ, not only is trusting in him, leaning in him, drawing from him, but as we trust him, as we rest in him, this faith, this life within us, changes us. It produces fruit. Now, what is this fruit? What does this fruit look like? Old-fashioned preachers would have said this fruit is us winning souls to Christ, which is a great thing, but let's remember it's the Holy Spirit who wins souls. We testify. So it's not quite that, though it's a good thing. This fruit, is it, is it good deeds? Well, it's not quite that either, though there are good things to do, and a living faith will produce living works. We're not justified by them, but it shows that our faith is alive, as James tells us in James 2. So what does this fruit look like? Is it a strawberry? Is it an apple? Is it a dragon? Dragon tree. Up. What was it? Dragon fruit. What is a dragon fruit? That sounds weird. Okay. Thank you. I love LBC. You find out all sorts of things on Sunday morning, don't you? No, the fruit that we're called to primarily produce, because bear in mind, this chapter here is talking about image bearing and reflecting God's glory, is reflecting Christ's likeness. And somebody who has been in Christ and remaining in him for a long time, who's been in his company, starts to develop habits of him. What's the old saying? Birds of a feller flock together. And the company you keep does influence you, doesn't it? I mean, since I've been down here in England, my Northern Irish accent has had to calm down a wee bit. Believe it, it has. Trust me, it has. When I go back home and come back, your loads calm down. The company we keep influences, doesn't it? And if we are close to Christ and we abide in Christ and we fellowship with him daily through prayer, through reading his word and seeking to be mastered by it, not masters of it, as we love and try to love through the power of the Spirit as he does, we will pick up the habits of Jesus. And bearing fruit in the Christian life is first and foremost becoming like the Lord Jesus through our own personalities. Isn't that a beautiful thing about the Lord? Look around the room today. Is anyone the same? Thankfully, we've got no twins in the room. <laughs> but even twins are different, aren't they? Have you ever been, like, 
people get caught up in rhapsodies about them. I think they're beautiful, but I wouldn't go mad about it. Have you ever seen a really beautiful stained glass window? And the sun just hits it right. I mean, I, I wouldn't have the patience to build those things, but a stained glass window, when it captures the sunlight, is a beautiful thing. And what is a stained glass window? It's made up of many different parts of glass, but one source of light shines through them. We are uniquely called in Christ. Many tribes, tongues, nations. Notice that in Revelation that our differences aren't taken away. In heaven, we will speak many different languages. Isn't that great? I'm looking forward to actually learning English for the first time. No, no. <laughs> we'll speak many different languages in heaven. We're unique. You were made by God. Paul says himself, I am who I am through the grace of God. To be transformed into Christ's likeness, yes, but Christ in you looks different sometimes for how Christ is in others. And together we reflect the glory and the beauty of the Lord together. One body, many parts. Isn't that amazing? But the parts do have some commonality. The fruit of the Spirit is, now you should know this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Wait till Richard writes a song about the genealogies and chronicles and we'll get. <laughs> but who is love personified but Jesus? Who is joy personified? And we'll see later on just as we look at the rest of the passage. But Jesus. Does it not strike you as you read the Old Testament, you read the Bible? I mean, there's Zephaniah that talks about the Lord rejoicing over us with song. Isn't that an amazing thing? God is joy as well as love. His patience, patience as we rebel against him, patience as he tries to woo the world back to himself. One day that patience will cease and God will come in judgment. But now is the era of his patience, his kindness. How kind the Lord has been to us. His goodness, his faithfulness. 1 Timothy, even if we are faithless, he cannot be faithless and deny himself. His gentleness. Gentleness is an underrated virtue, isn't it? And yet the most powerful being in the whole universe is God himself. And God is gentle. And self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, which means if we abide in him, let us keep step, let us walk in union with Christ. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Paul would pick up that theme of abiding in Christ. We abide in him and he produces fruit in us. We become more like Christ. And brothers and sisters, that may take time. The work of sanctification, meaning becoming more like Christ, is a long work. Sometimes we go forward, sometimes we go backwards. But if faith in us is genuine and living and real, we will strive to be like this. And that's why Jesus then reinforces this, this abiding in verses 9 to 11. He gives a command, which sounds strange. Verse 6 there, first he warns us, if we do not abide in him, there is no salvation, there is no hope, there is no other name under heaven by which we will see it be saved. They are gathered and burned and put into the fire, which is a sign of God's judgment. Do not reject Christ. Do not be cast off. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, whatever you ask, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Jesus is the source of his life in whom we abide, producing fruit. And what does that fruit, how does this context work? What's the soil around us like? Well, let's look at verses 9 to 11. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. That passage is astounding, is it not? 
Can anyone here doubt that God the Father loved his son? And with what a love he loved Jesus. The love at the heart of the Trinity is a powerful, strong, deep love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John, later on, we'll look at it later on in this chapel. Some of this is some of the deepest things in 1 John 2. Here in his love, God is love. God loved his Son. And the Son loved the Father. They delighted in each other. And friends, what Jesus says to you is this, as the Father has loved me, notice the language here, I have loved you. Isn't that a staggering thought? Can we even begin to grasp that? I could spend, I, I've got some books in my, in my um, what do you call it? Library study. I've got some books in my study where you get these old-fashioned preachers of Puritan stuff who will pick one verse and they'll preach about 600 sermons on it. And you can see why. I mean, if you stopped and camped out there, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Remain in my love. Brothers and sisters, I don't think we've fully grasped the love which keeps us in Jesus Christ our Lord, have we? Paul himself staggers to explain it. Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 21 is a prayer. I mean, imagine praying this. If we pray this for each other for the... Why don't we pray this for each other for the rest of the week? That we would know the love of Christ. Love that is... Why do kids get the best songs? They do, don't they? Love that is so... Love that is so... Love that is so wide. Oh, wonderful love. That you would be filled with the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you would be rooted and grounded in that love. And to the God who could do more than we could think, hope, or imagine, be glory in this church and in all churches through Christ Jesus our Lord. You are loved like the Father loves the Son. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. Now that sounds strange to our ears, does it not? We're a culture that doesn't like to be told what to do, do we? How many of us bristle at red traffic lights? How many of us see those people walking up to push the button? We're like, don't do it. We don't like to be told what to do. But if we consider some of the strongest love relationships, there is guidelines in them, is there not? When we're called to marry, we love our spouse and we delight in our spouse. And one of the commands we have is not to commit adultery. And we won't do it because we know the hurt and the pain and the, the disunity it would cause in the relationship. So we follow that command out of love. Do you see that? So what Jesus says here, if you do what I command you, he's not laying down the law so that we earn his love. He's saying, no, if you love me, if you delight in me, if you truly follow me and are signed out for me, because you love me, you will do what I do. You will live like I will live. Yes, it's put down as a command, but the command here is almost, it's, it's because you love him. Jesus loved his father. Did you ever see Jesus at one point, with the exception of Gethsemane, which we could look at in a second, but did you ever see at one point, Jesus said to the father, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go and talk to them people. Oh, they want food off me. Look at them, there's 5,000 men starving and they want fish suppers. I'm not going to Lazarus' grave. Lazarus is dead, he can stay dead. He fully followed his father's will perfectly, didn't he? And it wasn't under a sense of compulsion. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, yes. But he delighted to do it. Love drove him to do it. Sorry, God, I'm not going to trap today. I'm having a lie in. No. Just as he kept his father's commands, he remained in his love. 
The context of the Christian life is lived out in love. What are we here for? We're here to know that Jesus is the source of our life, in whom we abide. And when we abide in him through faith, we produce fruit Christ-like character in the context of love and also in joy. Look at verse 11. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I don't scares people when preachers start talking about joy in churches. Because sometimes we have to admit that churches don't always look. And when I talk about joy, let me define joy here because I'm not saying that you should all be like Cheshire cats. Do you ever see that famous sketch when Garfield meets a Cheshire cat? And Garfield, there's a Cheshire cat with a big grin and there's Garfield. Then you see this sort of disturbance and then you see Garfield lifting his fist. And then there's a picture of the Cheshire cat still smiling with a tooth missing. <laughs> People think that's joy. That's not joy. Joy is a deep-seated contentedness in the core of our beings that does not depend on circumstances. Happiness depends on circumstances, doesn't it? Happiness depends on circumstances. That's great. The queue to McDonald's is short today. Happy days. The traffic's not bad. I'm happy. No, no, that's happiness, and that's fine. But joy is a deep-seated contentedness in our inner being that life is as it should be, and things are right, and only that can come from God himself in relationship with him. Because if we're apart from God, everything is disassociated. Everything is out of joint. Things will not be right. That is the heart of what Paul talks about in Romans 1 as well. They've exchanged the glory of God for the lie of other things. There's no happiness there. But those who are truly in Christ will know his joy. Many of you, when you get emails from me, or maybe have heard you say in prayers, may the joy of the Lord be your strength. May the joy of the Lord be your strength, brothers and sisters. As Jesus is the source of our life in whom we abide, producing fruit in love, joy. And lastly, final point, in friendship. This is an amazing dust that this goes on here. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No greater love than this, and one has laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And by the way, brothers and sisters, the standard of love that we are to have for each other is how Jesus has loved us. And I think we could all say this morning that we have not done that halfway. What do we do? We say, Lord, help me to love like you. But imagine a fellowship. Imagine a group of people who loved each other like Jesus loved them. Many years, how many of you ever studied church history? Has anyone here studied church history? A little bit? How is church history taught mostly? You sort of look at the theologians and how they preserve doctrine, how it's passed out. So you look at the great guys, and they're great, like Augustine and, and Irenaeus and all those guys who passed out doctrine. And, and basically, in some ways, church history almost comes across as, as the history of how these things are passed down, which is true and important and good. But a few years back, a guy called Rodney Stark, who's an interesting character, and I wouldn't recommend everything he says, wrote a book about how the church actually grew. How did it grow? Yes, they believed about Jesus and they trusted in him, but they loved one another. And these small communities in Corinth and Galatia and all scattered around Ephesus, they put into practice what Jesus said here. They cared for the widows that the Roman state couldn't be bothered with. They looked after the poor. I mean, one of the Roman... I, I mean, I wish we got... But it'd be great to get Christians like this. Firstly, you're like Jesus. How awful is that? And secondly, those Christians will look after the people we don't look after. And as this love was at the heart of fellowship, folks start to see a different way of life because Rome, I mean, if you want to see this, if you want to interest and read, read Tom Holland's book called Dominion. 
It's a book that says how the West has been so shaped profoundly by Christianity. It's not mean to say there's, uh, it, it has been shaped profoundly by it because Rome's world was power. If you're strong enough, you'll make it. If not, off to the, the, the ash heap. Might, strength, the emperors, Caesar, he's our figure. Augustus, he's our figure. The Christians come and said no. When God evaded this universe, he didn't send in the tanks. He didn't send in the centurions. He sent in the meek, those full of love, those who lived like Christ sacrificially, who cared and brought the gospel into places and let his light shine in the darkness. And that is how the early church grew in the space of 300 years to be a force that actually shook the empire. Abide in me. Jesus is the source of our life in whom we abide. We need his strength to love like him, to produce this us in his love, we love others. In his power, we show joy in difficult circumstances. And we do this lastly in the context of friendship. Isn't this beautiful? No greater life that is one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. I mean, imagine the scene here. This is the upper room. Jesus is saying these words and he knows in the space of a couple of hours that he will be nailed to the cross. He's not messing around here. He's not saying sentimental words to make the disciple feel good. He's opening his heart and what's in his heart is this. You are my friends. Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses talked to God in familiar ways. There's evidence in Scripture that only Moses and Abraham in the entirety of the Old Testament history have been called friends of God. In Jewish religion to this very day, God is the distant holy figure. You don't call him friend. You don't even say his name. You say the name. That was the Old Testament. Jesus comes here, truly man and truly God, puts the human face in God, shows us how we are supposed to live as image bearers of God. And he says to us, and he still says it today, yes, this was directly to the apostles, but it applies to us, you are my friends. And it isn't too sentimental, it isn't too tweed to sing what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. It's great to have a friend who's closer than a brother or sister, isn't it? How many? I hope all of you are blessed with friendships that you have where you can call somebody at three o'clock in the morning and say, help, even though they may shout at you down the phone. A good friend is hard to find, are they not? But here Jesus himself says to you and me, I am the source of your life. Abide in me through trust and faith. Stay in me. Keep close to me. Produce fruit in love and joy and do it with me as your friend. I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. I don't know if many of you have seen the newspapers today that there's a book out that describes the ins and outs of what happened at Balmoral last year when the Queen passed. And people love that sort of information, don't they? Because we don't really get privy to what happens inside royal courts, do we? I mean, none of us know what the queen thought. I would love to know what the queen thought about some of her prime ministers, but we'll never know. Or what she thought, actually, no, we'll look down that road. But what she thought about, but we'll never know, will we? And even when we get wee tippets like that, like King Charles came to the throne when he was foraging for mushrooms, we delight in wee tippets like that. Here Jesus says to us in the very throne room of heaven, 
at the heart of our universe, the place where our existence is explained, where we find out what we're here for, why we're here for, and what we're going to do to make a difference in this world, he has come and given us all those answers in the context of friendship. What were you made for? You were made to know God and delight in him and to reflect his glory. You will only ever find your meaning and your purpose in Jesus Christ. But he has come and made himself known to you. And he's calling you, brothers and sisters and friends, if you're in Christ for many years, come afresh to him this morning and rest in his love, abide in his love and let him speak to you through the Holy Spirit in his word this morning. He loves you, you're his friend. And that love that pours on you. I mean, I would love, has anyone here ever been to Niagara Falls? What's the wee boat that made of the mist that chugs in and gets you wet and chugs back out? I would love to do that. Poor man will have to restrain me because I'm one of those really annoying people who just like to jump in which isn't a good idea, and I will die, and I'll be the enemy. But imagine that volume of water that pours over the Niagara Falls. That is but a drop in the bucket of the love of God that pours over each and every one of us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That love floods into us, and he tells us not to hold it within, but let it flow out, producing love and joy. And that's what makes a difference in this world. Not politics, though they're good and they have their place. I'm not criticizing them. They're trying their best. But you cannot legislate for love. But love is the power through God that brings salvation, that forgives sins through the cross and the resurrection and repentance, that changes lives, that lifts up the brokenhearted, that binds up the wounds. Love, if you want to make a difference in this world, is the way to go through Jesus Christ our Lord by abiding in him, trusting in him, and showing his joy and friendship. If you're here this morning and you think, well, That's great for Christians, but Jesus wouldn't be interested in me. Well, I could argue with you for a bit longer, but read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and see who Jesus came to. He didn't go to Herod. Jesus never said one word to Herod. He was in his presence, didn't speak. He went to the poor. He went to those shunned by Sally, the tax collectors, the harlots, the sinners. God is here this morning, and he opens his arms of friendship to you. Will you respond? Let us pray. Lord, we did not choose you, but you chose us. We thank you this morning that we have experienced your love is because of your seeking, searching power that reached into our hearts. What caused us to pray? You. What caused us to turn your work? Thank you this morning for my brothers and sisters who you've chosen and placed here in Lincoln. Be we students, be we here retired, be we working here, whatever it is, Lord, we thank you that you have placed us here to abide in you. The fellowship with each other, you've appointed us, Lord, to go and produce fruit, that our fruit would remain. So we would ask, as you tell us in the Father's name, that you would give us this Christ-like character. As we abide in you, firstly, you would fill my brothers and sisters with a fresh assurance of your love this morning. A love that finds its greatest expression and exposition on the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Oh, Holy Spirit, I can only say those words. May you apply them to the heart. Root and ground us in that love. And even if we're in difficult circumstances, Lord, what I pray next isn't done unsensitively, but is done with the true definition that you'd also fill us with your joy. A joy that comes resting and abiding in Christ, knowing that he is sovereign and he does all things well. 
and that all things are worked together for good for those who are called by your name. So even for us in this fellowship this morning who are worried about family and friends and loved ones who have had bad news from the doctor, in your love, may we also know your joy as our strength. And help us as a fellowship of believers to produce fruit that will impact Lincoln, Lincolnshire, England and beyond. We want to know you and we want to seek your face and be transformed and we want that light to be known by others. And lastly, Lord, if there is any this morning who do not know you, I pray that they would be stirred up either to speak to one of us or even to do business with you direct, Lord. We thank you that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, believing in their heart and confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, will be saved. So do that in our midst, we pray. And bless us as we go into the fellowship lunch, Lord. As we fellowship together, help us to fulfill the command because we love you to love one another. And may we do this that you would be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's our last song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Excellent. Please stand with me as the worship team comes back. And as you sing this song, do you? Take the words in. Christ will hold you fast. <laughs>